Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Mick McGee. I love having proper conversations with intelligent people, especially over a beer, and that's exactly what this podcast is. We'll cover a new topic each week, so join us with a beer and let's cheers to science. So what do you think about that introduction? Do you like the rock music? Is it a bit too much? Is it alright? Does it work? This is the first episode of Science and Beers, the Science and Beers podcast. So I'm really looking for for feedback. If you can get back to me, what do you like? And especially what you don't like. Because we can adapt this and turn it into something that works well for for the majority. If you're aware of the Science and Beers brand, you might have been to one of our live talks. We were running them a very long time ago. Maybe probably about a year since the last one, I think. But we did three seasons of talks. The rooms each talk it was it was jam packed. And obviously we can't do that in the current pandemic. Pack a room full of people. But the pandemic pandemic also brought the idea for this podcast. Bring it online and do it once a week. That means we can talk science over a beer once a week for as long as people want to listen to it. And you can tune in anytime you like, however you like. You don't need to put on trousers anymore like you used to for the old talks. You can enjoy it like me right now at home in your underwear, the cold can of beer. Choice is yours. So we can develop this into something that works well. So please give me your feedback. The idea being that we take Sans Talk to the bar. Sitting down with an academic. Having a pint of beer. Maybe five, maybe six. And just discussing science in detail. But the bars are closed now as well. So... This first episode, it's done with a virtual beer over Skype. But also because we're doing it over Skype, that means we're we're not limited with uh, with the geography of our guests. So the the next th- this conversation is with uh, Dr. Daniel Mills, who is on the phone with me from. Uh, from Portland, Oregon. He specializes in in earth history and how life developed, particularly between 0.5 and 2.5 billion years ago. Dr. Daniel Mills, he's a friend of mine. He has a PhD from the University of Southern Denmark and he's currently a, a postdoc at Stanford University in California. Really hope you enjoy this conversation. And really, please leave feedback. Either send us an email at sandstonbeers at gmail.com or on Twitter 
Instagram, or Facebook at Science and Beers. Hope you enjoy. Danny boy, how you doing? Good, look at you with that microphone. Looks good. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I feel like I'm already on a, on a show. <laughs> a show where a guy talks to a sock. Talking to a sock. <laughs> Dan, thanks for very much for joining me from Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's It's bit too early in the day for you to start beer there unfortunately uh so you're on the tea well uh, let me just crack open the beer here there you go cheers dad cheers michael thanks for having me Pleasure. so i i know you dan from from the university of southern denmark uh, but I, I mostly know know you from from the bars around uh the university. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, I, I actually stalked you a little bit before we had this conversation. So I found your your, your website, uh, DanielBrodyMills.com, to to have a to refresh my memory from what you might have told me, um, in the bars of uh, of SDU. Uh, but your research, it, it it focuses from the Cambrian explosion, which was half a billion years ago, to two point five billion years ago um so can, can we just put that into into context that that time frame for, for our listeners please how does that fit in with the, the history of, of earth sure so this is this time interval that you define from 2.5 billion years ago to a little more than half a billion years ago uh, this is labeled the proterozoic eon so there are three major eons in the geologic timescale. Um, the first official being the Archean um, from 4 billion years ago to 2.5. Then you have the Proterozoic. And then you have the Phanerozoic, which is what we're currently in. So the Proterozoic is, is often labeled informally Earth's Middle Age. So it's kind of in the, you know, the middle of Earth's history. And it essentially starts with the irreversible oxygenation of the planet's atmosphere, uh, what's called the the Great Oxidation Event. This is really the the major defining moment at the end of the Archean, beginning of the the Proterozoic. So, a kind of the beginning of the Proterozoic is marked by you now have oxygen in the atmosphere, uh, and then the Proterozoic essentially ends with the appearance of um, not only animal life. In the, in the rock record, the beginnings of animal life, but also um, beginnings of a more modern biosphere uh, with, with um, eukaryotic primary producers, algae versus you know, cyanobacteria, in uh, the beginnings of a more modern world. So those, are, those kind of define the beginning and the end of the Proterozoic. So you sent me a book called The Biosphere a couple of days ago uh, by Vernadsky. And I'm a few pages in, and it's it's truly fascinating that this guy was one of the first to see how biology and chemistry and geology they're so interconnected, and you can't have a proper picture of Earth history without looking at them all together. Uh, do you want to 
to uh, to talk a bit about Vernansky. Vernansky, but you know, you know, Vernansky is is not like a household name. He's pretty obscure, even amongst biogeochemists, like in the West. Um, which is which is really unfortunate, given your uh, your your talk about the nosphere and and the the book. Of course, the book's from nineteen twenty six. But how how many other uh, uh, genre defining uh, books came from, and and papers came from that era? No, a, a lot. Like in physics, there was a golden age for physics, and then then and I I wasn't aware of this guy Vernansky. No, in in Un, until you introduced me to him. No, and it's unfortunate because I, you know, so so Vernatsky, Vernatsky was, so he was born in Russia, but his parents are from, they're ethnically Ukrainian, and he was a Russian mineralogist and geochemist um, who died uh, towards the end of World War Two. So you know, he's a Ukrainian Russian Soviet mineralogist and, 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 and geochemist, um, or I should say a geologist, and then he really pioneered and developed the field of what's now called biogeochemistry, um, which is a huge field in the West. And, you know, so intellectually, I think he, he has some kind of ownership over, over launching the field, um, though that may not be explicitly recognized by a lot of practicing biogeochemists in, in, in the West. Um, but essentially is, is, he's most famous, you know, at least in the West for the book you mentioned that he, that was first published in, in Russian in, in 1926 and actually wasn't translated to English until the late eighties. Um, and then again in the nineties, um, and that, that's the biosphere. And I mean, the biosphere is a household term everyone you know know, people use that word a lot and but it means very different things to different people whenever i learned biosphere it was the definition that i learned was everything that's living yeah no that's no but that's a good point that's a common so it's confusing because it's defined in different ways in different contexts right it could be the sum total of everything that's alive on the planet right it could also just be the the realm of the earth that it is inhabited. So wherever organisms live and persist, that's the biosphere, right? Or um, and that, so those are usually the, the today. I think those are probably the two most common. So either be like the sum total of life on the planet, or the sum total of all ecosystems on the planet, then embracing organisms and their environments. So um, but it, 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 it gets really confusing because people, like a lot of people define geobiology as like the coevolution of the biosphere and Earth's surface environment. And that's really funny because in a lot of way, Earth's surface environment is the biosphere. So it's the coevolution of the biosphere with the biosphere. Like, so it's actually, so it's, it's, a, it's, a common, it's a common phrasing that I think a lot of people take for granted, but it's actually really important to, to dissect it and break it down and understand where this concept came from. Um, and Vernaski didn't invent it. It's usually attributed to um, Edward Seuss, who was a, a geologist, a Swiss geologist, um, writing in the late 
19th century. Um, and I, as far as I know, he used the word, but didn't really define it. Um, mm -hmm. And then Vernatsky really ran with it and really developed it in a substantial way for the first time. Um, and well, it's really interesting that he's a he's a mineralogist, right? So he's he's not a biologist, yeah. Which is which is because I studied biology, you know, and whenever you're studying biology, you study biology, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I would imagine if you study chemistry, you study chemistry. If you study mineralogy, you study mineralogy. But but it's it, it takes a it takes you to step back quite quite a long way to to, to see that every, everything is linked. If you study this, it's related to that. And I guess for a mineralogist, he's trying to figure out okay, where did all these things came from? And the answer came up more times than not. It must have came from life that must have existed millions if not a billion years ago right and that that, that must have been uh, well it is it is a, an absolutely breathtaking thing to think of you know no absolutely like he, he his interests were he was a sort of a polymath and he spoke like maybe a dozen languages and read in a dozen languages um wow and was interested in a number of things um even so, I mean, there have been a lot of polymaths in history and, and so on, and, and he's certainly one of them. But, I mean, maybe not like, you know, he wasn't like a painter as well. But, um, yeah, right. Th this is before, you know, now we take for granted that we have like images of the Earth from space and these sorts of things. Like, he didn't have any of that. Like, it is amazing that he had such a holistic view of the planet at, at the time that he was active. Um, and... Essentially, like as a mineralogist and a, and a geologist, his interest in life was in recognizing life and appreciating life as a geologic force. That's probably the best way to sum up, the most succinct way to sum up the biosphere. You know, what's the take home message is that life itself is a geologic force on the planet. Um, and he actually called life, he, he, has, he had his own. Um, his own vocabulary that we, you know, we don't really use in the West. Um, he would never, he would never refer to life as life. He would refer to life as living matter. Um, yeah. And he did this very, <laughs> he did this very deliberately because he, he, you know, he was an atheist and he didn't want, he didn't, you know, he didn't want any connotations of, um, of vitalism. You know, the idea that there's something, there's something extra about life that can't be captured by its its physical chemical description. There's something other, you know, transcendent, you know, divine about life. Um, he wasn't. I don't think he was actually trying to reject. He just didn't want to go there, you know. So he, he, he called it living matter, um, to kind of separate living processes um, from you know any kind of discussion or. or uh, mention of vitalism um but he mostly looked at life in terms of yeah their meta like the metabolic activity of organisms and their cycling of of major bioessential elements in the planet and um the the novel forms of matter that life makes uh, as a result of its of its 
of its living activity, you know, from, from shells or, you know, certain kinds of rocks or, um, it's, it's like, like life from the past can sustain life from today. So salts like calcium carbonate runs in from, from dissolved rock into the ocean. That's used to make shells for microorganisms. They die. They go down to the bottom of the ocean. They become sediment. They become a rock. Earth's movement lifts up that rock again. The rock dissolves. It goes into the water. It becomes shells. It's just, you know, like the, the pyramids. The pyramids, they're made from, like, how, how old are those single-celled organisms that make the pyramids? The, the foraminifera, they're, like, millions of years old. So they fell. They became limestone. They got dug up turned into pyramids i didn't even realize that are the, are the pyramids made of limestone they're made i from never limestone, knew that yeah, yeah i never realized that. millions of year old microorganisms the the chalk that we scrape against our blackboard millions of year old no it's a good point yeah microorganisms from the sea no and, and it emphasizes the exactly like what vernasco is trying to get at because you might think of chalk as like that's non-living organic it's just chalk oh, right it's just like, chalk. who thinks about chalk who thinks about where does chalk come from it's just something right it makes that annoying sound against the blackboard but a lot of these things yeah you know they would not exist in the absence of life um even these uh, these inert uh, materials um even the the very ground that we stand on is is a, a, like the Earth's crust. A lot of it grew from no, and like dead 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 microorganisms that that have fallen in their droves and became solidified. Right, yeah. Through the heat and pressures of Earth's interior. But look at like the the cliffs of Dover. I mean, like that. You don't get you wouldn't get that in the absence of life. You might still get. Um, calcium carbonate and stuff but not in that not in that manner you know not with that composition not with that um history or or means of formation um the, the magnitude yeah and um or even the soil like i think as a kid I'm, i just assumed like soil was just there and plants grew in it but not realizing that like you know life makes soil in the absence of life there just be barren regolith and rock you know on, on our surface um and well, 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 this this is also, uh, you know, so processes that happened billions of years ago. Everything today wouldn't would be impossible without it. For example, the great oxygenation event. Mm -hmm. So there would be. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the ozone is needed to, to block out UV harmful shortwave mm -hmm. radiation from the mm -hmm. sun. If it comes down. It's very, very difficult for life to uh, to grow on land without that that high intensity radiation damaging the the, the cells mm -hmm. on land. It's okay underwater because yeah, the, the the water sends it away. But the fact that cyanobacteria, two point five or whatever billion years ago, started to produce oxygen, it made the ozone. It protected things so that it could come out of the ocean onto land, the very land that life and set made it. Right. I, I find that mind-blowing. No, and, it, it, and that's something Bernaski recognized, yeah, the, the, that our oxygen-rich atmosphere is, is, a, is a byproduct of life um, and wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't exist in the absence of life. Um, and it does emphasize how life irreversibly alters the planetary environment and these changes then afford new opportunities for life's 
evolution. So yeah, like it permits certain kinds of organisms um, to go on land um, where maybe before they wouldn't have been able to. Um, so what 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 Verdansky is describing, what he describes is is what. Uh, went on to to be the process that we define as biogeochemistry right and and i was I, I i think i never actually defined the biosphere in, in bernatsky's terms um so to contrast with the definitions we talked about earlier like the sum total of life on the planet or the sum total of earth's ecosystems um or the earth as one global ecosystem that being the biosphere um Vernatsky really looked at it as more of a process, more of a happening than like a catalog of organisms or like a, you know, um, and he really emphasized, he was part of this, this movement, this intellectual movement called Russian cosmism. So he had a, a kind of cosmic perspective on earth processes and the cosmic connection with the biosphere is is the sun that essentially our planet is being bombarded with all this solar radiation what the biosphere is essentially doing is that it's it's harnessing and processing this solar radiation bombarding the earth from space and then with that energy essentially transforming the material makeup of the planet transforming it and and transporting the material constituents of Earth's surface environment, like in biogeochemical cycling, um, or the formation of, you know, certain rock types or mineral forms that wouldn't exist in the absence of life. Um, so he looked at really as this pro life is this kind of, is this mechanism, the biosphere is a mechanism uh, for the Earth to process sunlight, essentially. Uh, and in doing that acts as a major force of change on the planetary surface. Um, to contrast that with some ideas, you know, that were maybe more prevalent in the West at the time, is kind of that the Earth is just inherently the way it is. It's just conducive, you know, given its its mass, its, its initial composition, its distance from the sun, it lends itself to hosting life, to you know, presumably to, to um, creating life. Vernaski, you know, that Vernaski on the origin of life is an interesting topic. That's another thing. But in the West, presumably, you know, it's all about life forming on the planet, Earth being a, a, a good place for life. And then, you know, over time, the Earth may change the geologic timescales and organisms kind of gradually adapting to these changes over time. You know, Vernatsky, it's, 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 it, the emphasis is that life isn't just passively adapting itself to a changing planetary environment. It's a major, the major geologic force on the planet. It's actually defining surface conditions of the planet so so that that's interesting because i've heard it many many times that we're able to be where we are now because of, of a goldilocks effect right you know so there, there's no real credence given to the effect of life on the planet it's just life is should should be lucky to be here it should be lucky to be this distance from the sun the sun we, we should be lucky that the sun's that big we should be lucky right. That, that all of these things happen, but but really what, what you're saying and what Vernansky's saying is that, uh, yes, we're very lucky that those things happen, but there is a large degree of life actually engineering the Earth to be even increasingly habitable. 
to 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 get more life. Right, and and I would, and of course, like everything you mentioned, like there, all that all that luck still is a factor. I mean, <clears throat> the biosphere, excuse me, the biosphere has no control on the the mass of the Earth in general, or or its initial composition, or um, yeah. its distance from the sun, or you know, the nature of the sun. Um, life has no influence on any of those things. So, of course, all that luck still plays into it. But then once you have life on the planet, which may be contingent upon all these these other factors uh, we just talked about. Um, but right, you know, once you have a biosphere, um, you know, and this gets into what's called the Gaia hypothesis, which was developed in the West by, you know, by a British and American scientist, um, much later than when Vernaski was active. Um, but that deals with, is life crucial to maintaining Earth's habitability? You know, Earth must have been initially inherently habit- habitable in order for life to establish a presence on it. But then after that point, how important is life in maintaining uh, planetary habitability on geologic timescales? And, th- and, then, and then that brings you more into what's called the Gaia hypothesis. Guy hypothesis. Uh, James Lovelock. That, that's right. He, so he's he's essentially the founder, um, and the origin of the guy hypothesis is usually attributed to when he worked at NASA, and I I, I don't know what years he was working at NASA, but essentially um, they were trying to determine whether or not there could be life on on Mars and try and develop ways of how, how they could test that or recognize signs for life on Mars. And he essentially just looked at its atmospheric composition and said it's dead. There's no, there's, there's not, there's no life on the planet. Um, the Martian atmosphere is primarily carbon dioxide. Um, and essentially they say, and I, in atmospheric terms, they say that the plant, the atmosphere is in is in equilibrium. Um, like to, essentially, what he emphasizes, for example, you have the the persistence of atmospheric oxygen and atmospheric methane on geologic timescales. Um, so those those two gases would react and consume each other if they weren't perpetually being produced by life. So. The fact that you have organisms that produce methane on Earth, methanogens, and you have organisms that produce oxygen, cyanobacteria, plants, algae, um, and that they're continually present on the Earth, therefore you could have the, the coexistence of methane and oxygen on geologic timescales. Um, if you, if in the absence of life, those gases would react with each other, consume one another, and then the planet, planetary atmosphere would be left in, in equilibrium. Um, there's no signs of anything like that on Mars. So he concluded that Mars is dead. There's no life there. Or if, at least if there is life there, it, it, it doesn't have a planetary presence the way Earth does. Um, and Lovelock really looked at life on Earth as being a planetary process. It's a, it's a, it's a planetary phenomenon. It's, it's not something that happens in isolated pockets on the Earth's surface, it's it's a globally distributed planetary phenomenon that has major um, impacts on the very nature of Earth's surface environment. So everything on the Earth, from the the rocks to the atmosphere to the oceans, life, 
the biology, chemistry, it's all connected. And in, in Earth history, there's a defined in jumps in complexity. For example, before life, the, well, simple organisms, well, simpler complex compared to what came before, which is like, like gas and, and, and <laughs> gas, <molecules>. yeah, <laughs> gases and stuff. But then, so, so there's three phases in, in Earth's history. There's the Archaean, there's the Proterozoic, and the Phanerozoic. And the difference between each phase mm. is defined by what I would see as like a jump in complexity. So from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, mm -hmm. and then the eukaryotes working together to become multicellular. So I, I'm, I'm seeing this as a as complexity is just an, a natural phenomena in the evolution of Earth. Am, am I correct in thinking that? And if so, then where do we go from here? So the, the whole so complexity is actually a really tricky topic because even in so biology, if you want to say something like you know the complexity of life has increased over geologic time, you first have to understand what complexity is, and there's no real formal description of what complexity really means. Intuitively, we have a sense of what complex. You know, intuitively, I think most you know you can understand why. Uh, an amoeba is more complex than a bacterium, and a dog is more complex than an, an amoeba. Um, but scientifically, it's really hard to describe what exactly is different between the, these organisms. There have been many attempts, like number of parts, or you know, there have been many attempts. There's no real consensus as what complexity is. Uh, and then, then even if you were to you know have an agreed upon metric for complexity, is it increasing over geologic time? Um, and that's a, and a lot of, and that's also controversial because, um, for example, Stephen Jay Gould, the prolific writer and paleontologist, um, wrote this one piece called Planet of the Bacteria. And it's that bacteria have always been the dominant, uh, most numerous life forms on the planet. And they morphologically, I mean, they, you know, modern bacteria are very different from the earliest bacteria in archaea, uh, using bacteria very generally. Um, but morphologically, there's, I mean, there aren't, you know, there aren't uh, animal-like organisms made of essentially bacterial cells. You know, yeah. You're, you're saying life got it right the first time. <laughs> well, you know, there's been no, there, you know, <laughs> so it's only certain, very certain lineages that have gone through these um you know, from, from you know, only certain prokaryotic lineages contributed to the origin of eukaryotes, and then only certain eukaryotic lineages developed multicellularity um, on the order of plants and animals. And then, even within animals, it's only really one lineage of animals, our lineage, that has developed like a, a, a technological global civilization, and we can make things like radio telescopes and try to talk to aliens and whatnot. But that's only one lineage. Um, so it, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, exactly. So it's clearly not. So people, people, you know, a lot of biologists really don't like talks of complexity because first of all, we don't really know what complexity means, and then this kind of intuitive sense that a lot of people have of complexity um, increasing over time. A, a lot of biologists and paleontologists have, have challenged this or questioned this. Um, again, like most famously, just the fact that most organisms are bacteria. They've always been, you know, they they've always been the most dominant 
organisms on the planet, there aren't really, there haven't been any really major leaps in morphological complexity amongst bacteria um, since the origin of life itself. Um, it's only these exceptions that we focus on and we focus on our own lineage, right? Which is, you know, self-serving and of course is, is a major exception. Um, but all that aside, all that aside, like, like just making that disclaimer that like complexity is hard to define, um, the idea of it, it, it's, it's just just the way the way I would I, I see it, it it's, it's as you say it, it's inherently easy to see it but descri to describe it and to see it as an actual an actual system in in the in the evolution of life is not right science has not agreed on that right yet. and and again like it's, this gets caught up in all these other philosophical concepts um Concepts of progress, concepts of the scale of nature, the great chain of being, you know, this, this medieval concept, um, maybe it goes back to ancient Greece, actually, um, that, you know, you have this hierarchy with, you know, God at the very top and then maybe like inanimate rocks at the very bottom. And then you have, you know, maybe plants above rocks and then worms and then, you know, higher, quote unquote, higher animals and then humans and then angels and God. All this kind of it brings up all that kind of stuff, but just like to just to acknowledge it and to throw it aside as irrelevant to this conversation. Um, okay. Just to yeah. bring it up as like a disclaimer, like yes, these are these are things, these are controversial. We could spend hours talking about any one of those those things. Everyone agrees though that the modern eon that we're in, the Phanerozoic, the Phanerozoic literally means like the age of visible life. Um, so the Phanerozoic is defined by the, the, the diversity of macroscopic multicellular organisms um, that are essentially confined to this eon. Um, plants, animals, fungi, um, so on. Um, before this, you know, in the Proterozoic eon, right, you most life is, is exclusively unicellular. And, and maybe there are some multicellular forms, like, like little colonies, but even those, these colonies wouldn't be visible to us. They're not, they're not macroscopic yet. They may just be these filaments or chains or balls or something. And you might be able to see some signs of microbial life, like microbial mats are visible to us, but individual organisms are not visible to us. It's collections of them that are visible to us. Right, and then if you go farther back to the Archean, you don't have eukaryotes, and then you essentially just have bacteria and, and archaea um, and their ancestors, and um, that would be. You know, so there's everyone agrees that there are these distinct differences in the makeup of Earth's organisms throughout these eons, uh, and, and not only just the organistic organismic content of, of the biosphere but um it's chemical conditions uh like oxygen um, yeah. is the big one um so everyone agrees that the earth had these very distinct ep episodes right and that you know they they build on each other you know um uh, moving forward in, in in time um so that's not controversial that's that's true so the idea is i think what you're getting at is if this process were to continue what would the next stage look like what would the next eon look like um it's a difficult difficult question but it's one that i'm very much interested in right and and so 
this is inherently speculative. We could only speculate about this, but it's fun to speculate about it. Well, that's what yeah, beers are exactly, for, speculation. Exactly. Um, so, it's I mean, everyone, it's hard to talk, it's hard for us to talk about ourselves as humans because, you know, there's been centuries of, you know, uh, you know, we, you know, Historically, there's been this emphasis on humans as being, you know, the whole reason why the Earth even exists, right? Like, like the God essentially made, you know, the, the people who are theologically minded in the past view the Earth as essentially being, it was made so it could host humans, you know, essentially made for us. And um, there's been this overemphasis on our importance and centrality uh on the earth and then really since darwin there's been a, this huge switch in the other direction this de-emphasis on our importance and our centrality and so you know we're just one lineage among many many lineages on the planet we've all evolved uh, via the same sorts of mechanisms and processes um we're just one branch on this this giant tree of life kind of removing us from our you know perceived uh centrality Historically speaking, so keeping that all in mind, um, while we project ourselves forward in Earth history, we, I think most people would understand that our, our presence on the planet is unprecedented. There's been nothing like this on the Earth before. So whether or not you think of humans as being central to creation or humans as just one lineage among many, you know, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist or, or, or uh, a theist, it doesn't matter. Um, the human presence on the planet as it is today yeah. is unprecedented. I think we could all agree on that, right? Totally. So, yeah, geologists have, have named this this new era, the Anthropocene, because we, we dig out ancient forests that have been buried for millions of years and, and burn it as oil, or we turn it into plastic, and today there's there's no there's no part of the surface of the earth that isn't you can't find plastic. So in in a million years if, if people were to dig up the sediment from this time they would see plastic so we, we've made a, a defining geological impact on the earth and and our behavior and our consumerism changes the the chemistry of the planet from the the burning of fossil fuels to, to plastic so how, how how do we do we uh, do we live in a way that that is compatible with the earth and the species that we we share it with yeah, so to go back, I mean, I think a lot of it moving forward isn't really about, I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on like consumer decisions and, you know, they, it's on us um, and it's really focusing on like minimizing our carbon footprint and these sorts of things. And I think really like to build off Gaia and Vernatsky, you know, if you look at the the functioning of the earth system, you can kind of look at the life support systems, the, the sorts of processes, the biogeochemical processes that maintain our existence on the planet. We can kind of look at them as sort of 
our external planetary organs. You know, Jim Lovelock really likes the phrase geophysiology, that there's a sort of physiology of the planet analogous to the physiology of an organism that maintains planetary homeostasis, right? And this homeostasis, we're dependent on this homeostasis, this planetary homeostasis. So we can kind of look at the Earth system and its life support functionings, again, as our external organs as an extension of our of our bodies in a, in a, in a, in a metaphorical sense um, but also in a literal sense that we are literally dependent on these processes for our survival the way we are literally dependent on our own internal physiological processes and our individual survival um, and once we realize that the earth really is we're really integral to it that you know we are the earth the earth is us then if that perspective were to be really ingrained or part of our cultural framework i think we you know people of power would be less likely to exploit the earth in in a damaging unsustainable way uh the same way maybe on an individual level um you know if you're abusing your body it's unsustainable you know if you abuse your body enough it will kill you you know, it's the same way with the Earth. If if we ravage the Earth continuously, it will it will kill us. Um, and I think that's that's really the kind of perspective, you know. So it's, it's more of a of a shift in perspective than, you know, a, an explicit shift in in consumer decisions. Um, that I think it would be really important moving forward. And so if if everyone on the planet, and speaking really idealistically and and, and generally, if everyone on the planet really saw the Earth for what it is. Um, people will be less likely to abuse it for the same reason people would be, you know, are, are unwilling to cut off their arms or whatever. You know, people will be less likely to damage and destroy these external life support uh, mechanisms. Well, I, th I think that we have a, a perfect opportunity here with a pandemic. Yes. The pandemic affects the entire world. Um, and Maybe we come out, come out of it with more of a respect for for science. Maybe we come out of it with more of a respect for the Earth. But it is a little bit, little bit disheartening to to see all of these uh, the, these claims that uh, that this virus is caused by a, a, a telephone network or, uh, <laughs> or, 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 or 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 Bill Gates, um, the person that does more to combat parasite, parasites in poor countries than anybody else arguably in the world has invented the, uh, the the virus so he can inject people with a vaccine a mind control vaccine it's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit it's a bit sad to see these kind of things crop up but but i i i i don't want to leave it at, at leave our conversation down on, on on that dark note that i brought it brought us into uh, the the difference between the the phase of earth history in which you just described is different from the, the the three phases that came before, right? Because of consciousness, yeah. So all all of the major creative changes that came before us were 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 blind evolution, accidental mutations that 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 happened to uh, give uh, a, a trait that was adapted to that particular environment at that particular time. Whereas with our consciousness, we can creatively imagine what things could be like, and we we've imagined what things could be like for the betterment of ourselves 
but it's only only through education and understanding of the world can our creativity make something that is uh, that is good for both us and for our our organs. Right, right. Around around the earth. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because with cyanobacteria, when when the first oxygen producing organisms evolved on the planet, right, they weren't in a position to reflect on their changes. Yeah. And they, I wonder what yeah. would happen if I farted out of an oxygen molecule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's again, that's like that is, you know, regardless of your worldview, I think it's something we all can agree on is that we are in a position to reflect on the changes that we're bringing about to the rest of the earth system. We are able to do that as a result of our consciousness. In, in this sense, we just mean our ability to self-reflect on our behavior, recognize its impacts on the modern world, and then our ability to project what our influence will be like moving forward in, in the future. Um, again, that's un, that's unprecedented in, in earth history. Um, so now I think part of this is is we have to start imagining what a successful future will look like. What, what will, you know, a lot of times there's, I mean, it's a huge genre of, 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 um, you know, of media, literature and, and, and movies, especially of, of these post-apocalyptic scenarios. Like usually when we envision the future, it's in a very dystopic kind of context, a very, um, in a very apocalyptic context um and there's a huge draw to those stories of course today and um in a sense because it's really easy to imagine you know we we see the destruction that we're bringing about the earth today it's easy to imagine you know what happens when we just we bring it past the point of no return and and and, you know um what would life on earth be like then for for our descendants um but i think it'd be more helpful to us at this stage to start imagining stories of success. What does a successful, mutually beneficial human presence on the planet look like as we project our consciousness forward? And I think we have to really start thinking more about that. What does success look like? How do we bring it about? Or, Or somebody living 50 years from now has just as much right to live in a healthy planet as we do. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. How, how do we, how do we uh, appease their, their rights? Absolutely, yeah. and and something. So this is another figure that I haven't been talking about, but I've been referring to at least in my mind is um, a, an American man named Thomas Berry, who is a he was a Catholic priest and um, a theologian uh, who had a, a a great interest in Earth history and. Um, the human presence on the planet moving forward and and how do we survive the ecological crisis that we're facing now? How do we come out the other side? Uh, And he was greatly influenced by Pierre Tehard Desjardins, who is one of Vernatsky's colleagues. Uh, Tehard was also a, a, a a priest. He was, he was a Jesuit. Um, And Thomas Berry called this the great work. How do we figure out the great work is how do we figure out how to have a mutually beneficial presence on the planet as opposed to a, a presence of, of destruction. He, he had this, he said this many times in different ways, and it's a really good point. You can't have healthy humans on an unhealthy planet. Um, so 
like really in the future moving forward, if we want a healthy, well-functioning global society in the future, that's really critical on first establishing and maintaining a healthily functioning biosphere. Humans can only be healthy if the biosphere is healthy. And the biosphere can only be healthy if humans are healthy. Um, so, and that's something that he really emphasized and, and really in, in, in the, the great work that we have to do um, moving forward is really figure out how to do that, how to maintain our planetary health, the, the health of humanity, the health of the biosphere in such a way that the health of humanity is mutually enhancing the health of the biosphere and vice versa. Yeah. So how do we get over these destructive tendencies and, and, and relationships um, that are currently you know, at the root of our modern ecological environmental crisis? Global co cooperation is, uh, is, is uh, the answer that, that I've got, but that's, uh, that's a challenge. That would be a challenge indeed. Absolutely. But the more, the more science we have, the more beers we drink together, <laughs> and the closer we would be to, to, to fulfilling the great work, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Dan, thank you very much for having a chat with me. Well, thanks for having me. It's a lot it of fun, Mike. Pleasure. Hope, hope to see you back in, uh, in Denmark in a, in a bar someday real soon. Yeah, hopefully not. Thank you very too much long. For, for, for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's nice chatting with you. So thanks very much to, to Dan Mills. If you want to know more about Dan, check out his, his website, danielbrodymills.com, where you can see links to some of his uh, social, social media sites. So that's Daniel Brady Mills. D-A-N-I-E-L-B-R-A-D-Y-M-I-L-L-S dot com. So, yeah, please, get in touch. Tell me what you thought about that. What you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, let me know what kind of topics you would like to hear on future episodes. Next week, I'll be joined by Thomas Buru who is a PhD student at Copenhagen Business School. And I'll be talking to him about, about culture policy in Denmark. When he's not a PhD student, Thomas is also the lead singer of a punk band, Chvila. So I'm very much looking forward to, to having a beer with Thomas. Thanks for listening. Cheers to science. <laughs>